feeling as if I am touching the ground and the ceiling. In institutions that do not engage in healing, they simply open the wounds and entrap me in rooms where I am consumed by hypocrisy. But even Greek philosophers weren't the authors of their own philosophies. And the statues on campus be watching me. Washington, Jefferson, Williams, clocking me as if to say, Negro, your time's up. But I don't run laps on track. See, I run laps around the scholars of tomorrow because their new schools of thought are merely our history's borrowed. That was Two Sets of Notes by M.K. Asante Jr. And you're listening to WBEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. Today, this is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. My name is Becca Polk. I teach with the Spark Teacher Education Institute, and I'm also a middle school social studies teacher in Springfield. My name is Nina Kunimoto, and I'm currently um, a doctoral student at the UMass Boston Urban Education Leadership and Policy Program, and I teach um, at uh, the Community College of Vermont. Um, and today, our topic is. Um, is around a professional development that spark teacher education which 
both Becca and I are part of, um, that we did, um, was it about a month ago or so, over the summer, um, and it was a professional development called Teaching in Solidarity um, with Black Lives. And um, that, did we assign two sets of notes in, in the yeah. day? We did, yeah. yeah. And that's a really powerful, powerful um, spoken word, especially right now, you know, and it's so relevant, Becca, because um, of, you know, Trump and the, what is it, the 1776 Commission. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what really struck me about that spoken word uh, is that you, try, you pass the test, right? But at the same time, there's that truth. And so we really tried to bring that concept. We started with that and we also started with um, James Baldwin, um, a talk to teachers and really uh, dig deep. And we had different tracks. Um, we had an elementary, we had, what was the other, uh, humanities, right? That was just ours. And we had a STEM track. So we had um, three tracks. Um, we all started out with the same readings, the two sets of notes and um, James Baldwin's A Talk to Two Teachers. And I think- I wanted to read a quote from James Baldwin's essay to get us started. And we'll post this on our social medias. It's a really great essay if people haven't read it yet. It was written in 1963. The point of all this is that Black men were brought here as a source of cheap labor. They were indispensable to the economy in order to justify the fact that men were treated as though they were animals. The white republic had to brainwash itself into believing that they were indeed animals and deserved to be treated like animals. Therefore, it is impossible for any Negro child to discover anything about his actual history. The reason is that this quote-unquote animal, once he suspects his own worth, once he starts believing that he is a man, has begun to attack the entire power structure. This is why America has spent such a long time keeping the Negro in his place. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that it was not accidental. It was not an act of God. It was not done by well-meaning people muddled into something which they did not understand. It was a deliberate policy hammered into place in order to make money from black flesh. And now in 1963, because we had never faced this fact, we are in intolerable trouble. That was James Baldwin from A Letter to Teachers bring us to, to 2020 with that same trajectory. Exactly. And I just think it's so important, you know, this is one of the philosophies of Spark, but um, we really brought it into the professional development is that we have to know what is in our heads. We have to know what we've been taught because if we don't, then we're replicating those ideas, whether we're meaning to or not. I often think a lot about like how teachers spend so much time trying to develop the best lesson plan. And I've really found that the best lessons come from um, the, the moments that were not planned. And that's why it's even more crucial to be clear about what's in our heads. Right. And whether it's planned or unplanned, whatever those thoughts, right, the thoughts that that were taught to us, right? The way we think about people and, and things in the world just come out um, whether we plan or not. And, and I think the most sinister part of it is, is that we are, unless we like 
you know, like in our PD and in our program, in our SPARK program, you know, almost we sort of jolt ourselves into really facing what those thoughts are. It just continues to come out. And as you say, like continue to replicate this um, racist, white supremacist notions and, and relationships in society through education. Absolutely. So Nina, I think we should go to our first interview. Um, this is uh, Alexa and Billy, and they're going to start out with introducing themselves and what they love about teaching. They were part of the early, they're both actually early childhood educators. Um, and our first track, the early childhood and elementary track, was predominantly early childhood educators from across the state um, and beyond. We had people participating from actually across the United States um, with a focus in Vermont. So here they are. Well, my name is Billy Slade and um, I'm an early childhood teacher down near Brattleboro, Vermont. And um, I just celebrated 40 years in the business. So I've been doing this for a long time. Many of those years were in a family child care or home child care setting. And that's what I've kind of returned to now over the last couple of years. I run a nature-based program that's totally play-centered for, it used to be two to five-year-olds until COVID hit, and now it's two to 11-year-olds, um, as I have some school-agers in my program. And we are located on the, the campus of a, a residential summer camp, Green Mountain Camp. And so we spend a whole lot of time in the woods and it's, it's wonderful for the children, it's wonderful for me. And it's one of the things I like best about teaching is being able to follow their lead, especially when we're outside. I genuinely enjoy the company of children and I just think they have a wonderful perspective on the world and I learn as much from them, I think, as they do from me. I really like the fact that they tend to focus on the things that really matter and they're able to slow down the pace of our days in a way that makes me really pay attention to things. And uh, I don't see that a lot in my adult life. I really like, I like the time I spend with children and I think they genuinely know that. I like being in on the foundation level because they're such young children that I work with generally. I feel like I'm really making a difference from the ground up. Thank you, Billy. Well, hi, my name is Alexa Gabriel. I use they, them pronouns. And I am out in East Montpelier at a little place called Open Way Farm, where I just this spring summer opened the Gay Pony School for Babies, <laughs> which is the full name of my project. But um, we also call it the Pony School, which is a bit of a wild preschool and um, in COVID times also has stretched the age range of who is hanging out from two all the way up to 10, um, similar to you, Billy. <laughs> These are strange times that we're living in and trying to meet people and families where they're at. But I've been teaching in early ed for like most of the past seven or eight years in Vermont and in Philly. And yeah, why do I teach? I just feel like it is my in to the kind of world that I wanna build. It feels like such a critical foundation to whether or not we're like building a society for liberation or we're, we're, we're building a society for, for domination and oppression. And I really want to be part of like building a new world. And I just find so much joy and magic with children. 
and really practicing a lot of the things that I practice in my grown-up life around, you know, authentic relationship and care and mutual support and just really focusing on building a loving community. I feel really grateful that I get to do that with young children um, and learn alongside with them. Great. Thank you, Alexa. Mm-hmm. Y'all make it sound so amazing and it's like a good reminder sometimes when we're like under such uh, harsh conditions right now, both in terms of the like systemic racism, but also the pandemic. So it's good to always remember the joy of why we're doing this. Um, So thank you all for your answers. mm -hmm. So could you all talk a little bit about what you learned during the Spark PD teaching in solidarity with black lives and how it um, has influenced your teaching? This is Billy talking again. Um, um, the, the one thing I find myself going back to over and over again since finishing that series of workshops is this whole idea of impact versus intention. And it's, it's really, I didn't realize it even at the time that it was going to have such an effect on me, but it's a really powerful concept to think about that even if I don't intend to be hurtful in my comments or to be racist in comments, sometimes I can do that unintentionally and it still has an impact that I'm not even aware of. And I find myself even doing that with kids now, just you know, trying to teach them the difference between intention and impact. And then you know, one does not erase the other. And uh, we had some great conversations in one of my breakout groups about that very thing that um, you know, people will say, well, I didn't know, or it wasn't me or whatever. And it doesn't erase the impact that this has had on the world. And, and we, that's where our responsibility lies, one of our points of responsibility is to really be aware that even though we're not being intentional in harming someone, we might be contributing to it anyway without even knowing. So it just it felt like that was a real starting point for a change in thinking for me. It just felt so great to be in, a, in such a large community of people across the state, like a community of practice where we all had, like Billy said, like lots of different inroads and lots of different experiences and ideas to share. It just felt so nice to be in a virtual room full of educators and especially early ed people who really wanted to talk about liberation with young children. One of the things that I've been thinking about is is this idea of lineage, like, In one of the trainings, we learned the song, Which Side Are You On? and learned a bit of a story about like where that song came from and how it's evolved to meet different movement needs over the years and over the generations. And I just really love thinking about that sort of through line or thread of um, of music in terms of like movements for social change and also just in in terms of asking children questions about lineage, like, um, oh, cool, you got some new sneakers. That's great. Like, I wonder who labored to make those sneakers and like who benefited from that labor and who owns that company. And like, let's just get really curious about like where these ideas that we have come from. Well, thank you so much for that. The theme was teaching in solidarity with black lives. And so I'm wondering what that means to you in the work that you're doing. And we spent a lot of time talking about like what does solidarity mean? And folks gave a lot of a lot of different answers. And I feel like the answer that I gave feels really true to me that like I have an 
pretty deep understanding that my liberation is bound up with yours. And so like, if I want to get free, I also need to do kind of whatever is possible <laughs> to make freedom available for everybody. So it just feels like the sense of, of mutuality there. And you know, like I'm a queer person, I identify as like, non-binary, genderqueer, like, I guess that's one part of my identity that like has a pretty strong lived experience that I think helps me find a way into like, why I feel like teaching for liberation is so important. And like, I, I want people to do that for me too. You know what I mean? Like, I want, I want my story and like my people and like the truth of like the queer reality to be centered uh, in classrooms. And so like, I also want that to be true for like, I guess anybody who experiences an identity that's like on the margins. Yeah, I mean, I think teaching and solidarity with black lives has a lot to do with like, my own understanding of what the truth is and understanding how I can teach that to young children in ways that they can really understand and relate to. It's like, if we don't understand how the world is operating, then there's there's no inroad for us to figure out a new way to be in the world. I thought that the sharing of that Google Doc about the teaching and solidarity, what that meant to people was really interesting. Some of the things that were highlighted there were talking about putting aside our own defensiveness um, when, you know, when we're trying to align ourselves with someone whose life experience has been very different than ours it's a, I think it's a human tendency to revert to what's comfortable. And this requires that we get out of that comfort zone and that we in fact choose to be uncomfortable. And, and sometimes that's really scary. And one of the conversations that we had in the, in the breakout room was about how, first of all, our privilege of uh, being able to choose not to engage in uncomfortable conversations um, is, has worked, you know, has worked in our favor for so long and yet now it's a conscious decision to reject that and move past the discomfort to have those conversations. I just, I just had a friend, uh, a local friend who stepped down from a position in her town because those conversations got so uncomfortable to the point where she didn't feel she or her family were safe. And we like to think that in, you know, in, in little picturesque quintessential Vermont, that's not happening, but it is happening. And when we choose to, you know, kind of gloss over it and think of everything as being, you know, utopian here, it's, it's, uh, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And so um, the whole solidarity piece of being able to align ourselves with someone whose life experience isn't the same as ours and do it in genuine ways is to me the challenge and, and so important. And, and also when you're talking about teaching children, um, I think, Sometimes right now in the time that we're living in, it's, it's easy to give in to a sense of hopelessness and what am I doing? You know, I'm not out there marching. Um, I, I have some uh, of my own um, risk factors that would make that not wise for me to do. And sometimes I feel <clears throat> disappointed in myself that I'm not there protesting. And, and yet I remind myself that I'm doing this work of, like you said, Alexa, building the next generation so that hopefully it is different and hopefully yeah. these children will not be, it will not be so difficult for them to stand in solidarity with people who are different. And, and it's, that feels like an important investment in the world as well to be working with, with children so that we 
can somehow change this that's been so embedded in our in our society for way too long. Thank you all for that. Early educators were the first ones to go back mm-hmm. and now public school teachers are following. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts for all of us educators in Vermont. What times that we're living in and it I think there's something about the pandemic and the way that there is so much pressure on schools to fill the role of caring for and educating children sort of so that adults can go to work that feels pretty like starkly clear right now and and it feels clear how much that uh, and especially early ed um, it feels like is kind of like one of the foundations of making capitalism go and I just hold that in my mind as I think about like yeah what does it mean to to be providing childcare so that folks can sort of like go back and contribute to the economy or, or whatnot, whatever they're doing really. But that piece is sticking out to me a lot. And it and so it really helps me to think about some of the values and like greater purposes that I have for my classroom or my school or my teaching or my practice. Um, we're in, we're kind of in the end times, right? Like things are, collapsing left and right like it's a pretty wild world out there right now and um i want to be sure that i'm doing what i can to like bring forth the new world that i want to see um and so i guess what i would the message i would give to any educator right now is to just get clear about what's important to you because there's just so much coming at us right now (laughs) so much extra coming at us right now in addition to the like super heroic task of being an educator in these times, yeah, get get clear on what you're here for, and then like find find out how you can stick to it. It's interesting because my my words would be very similar. I had written down to use your energy for what really matters to you, mm-hmm. and because we all have limited reserves, and it's really easy to get sidetracked right now because the world is in such upheaval but to, uh, to be gentle with yourself, to be kind to the families that you're working with, um, realize that everybody is going through an unprecedented time, everybody, and, and to keep that in mind when you are focusing on the things that matter the most. Um, I might also add that I, I think that we need to be willing to learn, to, to show up and make mistakes and to not give up just because it's hard because that's a really, you know, that's a common tendency. When things get hard and uncomfortable, we just want to go back to a place of, of not having to work at it. And I really believe that this is a work in progress and that we are all works in progress right now in particular. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro. Today we're talking about uh, professional development that the Spark Teacher Education Institute hosted this summer. It was teaching in solidarity with Black Lives. And you just heard from Billy and Alexa, who are early childhood educators in Vermont, what they got out of the program. And I just think... um, you know, early childhood is such a important 
time in a child's life to be really introducing concepts of solidarity, concepts of equity. And often there's pushback around what is considered, quote unquote, developmentally appropriate. And so we hear that a lot. And I'm wondering what you think about that, Nina. That's so interesting because when I interviewed um, Kylie, who was in the uh, STEM track, she also talked about that in terms of, um, you know, when should we start talking about racism? And and Kylie actually teaches, um, she taught kindergarten. And this year, I think she's the kindergarten first or first and second. But yeah, that, that's an interesting question. But if we go back to James Baldwin, right? What he say? He's like, it doesn't matter if in the classroom you talk about race or class or not. The child is going to learn because the child's eyes are open. You go out on the street and you see the differences. You see the class differences. You see, like, I think um, the example that James Baldwin gave in um, his talk to teachers was, you know, back in before desegregation um, of buses, you know, a child will try to go to the front of the bus to sit down and the mother slaps the child and the child remembers that slap right? And that, that is the lesson. Um, so it doesn't, so I think that there's such a misconception, right? And it just, mm, what am I trying to say? It, it tells the child, like, it's, it's like this disruption in their heads, like they're experiencing this in the world with nobody really breaking it down, talking about it and helping them articulate what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Recently in Springfield, there was a complaint about a children's book that was read. Something happened in this town that talks about, um, it goes through a story of a white family and a black family and how they're grappling with a police killing in their town and how children who are eight years old are coming home and asking their parents about it. And so this book was taught in a third grade classroom and there was a complaint made by a police officer who overheard this story because his son's in the class. And he used the words, he said it was child abuse, which I think is interesting because that's exactly what Trump is now saying about the 1619 project, that it's abusive to children or teaching a diverse history is somehow um, harming children. And so I, the question is, which children is it harming? Um, it's exactly. uncomfortable for white children, but it's not harming them. Right. Um, and so luckily, uh, we were able to organize in Springfield and push back against a school board's controversial policies issue, um, a controversial issues policy. <laughs> yeah. But they were trying to kind of clamp down on what teachers could and couldn't teach in classes. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly like you brought up earlier, what Trump's trying to do right now with his project to teach students, quote unquote, the miracle of American history. Right. Um, How to be proud of our nation's history, which in other words is a racist propaganda Right, Because if you are only talking about the heroes as George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson, and you're leaving out the fact that they owned slaves, mm-hmm. that's a really important piece of the narrative. Yeah. And, you know, I teach at a, a community college and it's, 
so interesting also, you know, that even when they get get to that point, like a lot of, you know, as they were, as um, the, the, the two notes, right? Like that, that part of Washington was a slave owner, like they had no clue about any of this, you know? And I think people could go through their entire life possibly not knowing any of it. But I think you brought up a really important point about discomfort, you know, and um, really feeling, you know, being uncomfortable is okay, you know? Uh, and I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with the uncomfort. So that's something I think that's important for children, you know, for young children to learn that that's how we learn and grow. So absolutely who's our uh who's our next um let's go to kylie's interview um okay she was part of the stem track and in that track they talked a lot about what is science what is math how can we tell the story of the world through numbers and how are those numbers that we see in the world political really enjoyed it. Um, we had a good group in there. Um, there's about probably like 10 of us. And the the readings that uh, came up and the things we discussed are things that I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. um, so it was nice to get like a fresh look. I was actually in the STEM um, portion of it. What were some of the readings um, that stood out to you? Um, two that I really loved off the top of my head were, um, there was a, the James Baldwin, which was a talk to teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, and also we read an interview with Stephen Jay Gould. Um, and that was kind of about, um, the, the science behind, uh, skull size as it correlates to intelligence and how that had, um, led to racist beliefs that people um still hold on to today those two were readings that everyone did were there other readings that um what were some of the other ones i'm just curious yeah there were so we read we had different readings every week we off the top of my head we did a few um i know we read something from rethinking schools okay stem it seems like the james baldwin and the Stephen Jake Gould um, reading stood out to you because you remembered them, which is great. Let's start with uh, James Baldwin. Like, what were, like, for you, like, what what was your main takeaway from James Baldwin? Um, sure. I talked to well, teachers. Mm -hmm. There, I I wrote this down and remembered it. There's a quote from, from the talk that said, um, children not yet aware that it is dangerous to look too deeply at anything look at everything look at each other and draw their own conclusions mm. um and that really stood out to me because there's a lot of talk in schools about what books should we be reading around race um what what is age appropriate conversation about race and if we should be having it at all um mm. but, but kids hmm. are learning about race regardless of if we bring it up um right so that was that was really good to think about so then knowing that, right, um, like how do you see, um, and I know you haven't really started the school year just yet, but how do you see like that piece of knowledge from James Walt Baldwin sort of shifting, like how you sort of move 
um, within your classroom, but also within the school? Um, I think for me, that just means um, challenging how I present myself to a class. Um, I really, I really need to um, expand my own thinking, speak with colleagues, um, and view everything through a critical lens. Mm. And just teaching kids how to use the the thoughts that they already are having about race and how to challenge mm -hmm. um, what they're hearing from families, from the media, from their friends, and coming up with an understanding together um, rather than either not talking about it or having a set curriculum um, dealing with race. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even just getting it out, having that conversation, like, you know, right. to get out what's, what they are talking about or what is sort of swirling around in their heads is probably really useful for students, you know? Um, I'm just kind of curious, you know, if, wherever you've been, you must have heard others say that about age appropriateness. Um, what, what's the, in, in your understanding, like, what's, what are people's fears of whether the conversation about race is age appropriate or not? I think in school, everyone seems to um, mostly be afraid of offending families. Um, okay. I know that when these controversial topics are brought up, there can be a lot of backlash from um, families in the community. Mm -hmm. um, and also people don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to, with good intentions, say something racist to their class um, and have that out there. So I think people are either afraid for their jobs or just afraid to um, be seen as ignorant or having racism. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, um, okay. So now I kind of want to shift. I'm just very curious. Um, it seems like a Stephen Jay Gould reading stood out to you about the science behind race. Why was that important, um, do you think? Or why do you even think, do, or do you think it's important for teachers to, to study and understand the science behind race? Um, yeah, so the main takeaway I took from that was that um, science and math, STEM in general, is not um, neutral and not stagnant or apolitical. Um, I, I think we, we hold on to science and math as something that is just accepted as fact um, and as proven. Mm -hmm. But with things like in the Gould interview, um, science is, there's always going to be bias. Um, and in in the instance of this particular study, it was, uh, they were talking about human skulls and how bigger skulls were associated with higher intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and that thinking was later proven to be not true, but because his report and his findings um, found that white 
people um, were found to have larger skulls. They were thought to be a superior race right. mentally. Um, and if that's that's something you're hearing as scientific, it, and you associate science with fact and being unchanging, um, that's where a lot of mm -hmm. come into play. Right. Right. He, he deals a lot with genetics and, and race or, or de debunking the link between um, race and biology. Right. Um, which is so important to understand because I think a lot of, um, I think a lot of like implicit thoughts, you know, not just amongst teachers, but amongst the general population is that there is that link. Um, because it's not like Stephen Jay Gould's study or, you know, even like that understanding that there is no link is not mainstream knowledge or taught in any mainstream <laughs> um, courses. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, really important. Um, are there... Are there other things that um, you sort of want to, you might want to tell the listeners um, that you took away from, from this professional development course? Um, yeah, I mean, just having a group that I could talk with, it was a group of fellow educators to, uh, um, to talk about race and how it, um, appears in school and how to approach it as an individual and also as a teacher in front of a class. Um, and I know teachers like going into this year, it's, <laughs> it's really difficult. Um, and yeah. along with everything, I know we want to have like all the, all the right books and the right curriculum and say, like being able to say the right things to our class about race. Um, mm. But I really believe if we just, stay committed to challenging systems of oppression and expanding our thinking, viewing the mm -hmm. world through a critical lens, um, our students are going to benefit from that. Mm -hmm. So just having that space to, um, to learn and grow myself um, among other educators was super beneficial. Yeah.
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVWLP Brattleboro. That was Black Girl Soldier by Jamila Woods. Today we're talking about Spark Teacher Education Institute's professional development, teaching in solidarity with Black lives. We're actually going to be hosting another professional development in the next couple months. So if you are interested in joining, please send us an email at sparkedvt at gmail.com. You can also message us on Facebook at Spark Teacher Education Institute. Okay, and I'm just going to spell the email out, spark, S-P-A-R-K-E-D-V-T at gmail.com. So um, upcoming PD, if you are interested in joining, um, I think one of the uh, striking things I found in the last two interviews is is how it – it felt strengthening to be with others um, and, and to really bring, um, bring that energy together and to really be working together. Even if, you know, they, in our group, we had somebody from Chicago and, and the person you interviewed is in North Carolina, I think, right? I need to know. Um, the other uh, announcement we have is that we're uh, currently running a fundraiser uh, for a scholarship for two um, teachers of color for the Spark Teacher Education Program. You can find the link to a donate, if you could donate what you can, or um, if you can sort of spread the word, help us spread the word. Um, their research shows that um, when students of color have uh, teachers and administrators of color, that their success in school is much higher. Um, and, and that's what we want. Um, so can you help me out with a link? If you type in GoFundMe Spark Scholarship, it will come up. It's a longer link. The Spark Scholarship for Teachers of Color will be the first one that comes up. Okay. Also check out all of our social medias at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. There's um, lots of videos and other images on there that you can use to spread the word. And I think we're at about 5,000 right now. And we actually found someone who's going to, um, when we reach 7,000, they're going to match the donation. So help us get to 7,000 in the next week. We'll end our show today with a final interview. This is Anita and Molly, and they were part of the humanities track. I'm Molly Savane. I teach fifth grade at Green Street School in Brattleboro, Vermont. So it's the beginning of the school year right now as we're recording this, and I'm thinking a lot about building strong relationships with students is kind of at the core of what I hope to do. And lately that means playing a lot of games with kids. So that's something I really enjoy doing is getting outside and getting goofy and playing games. I'm Anita, Anita Moore. I am in Burlington, North Carolina. I teach at the local community college here, and it's called Alamance Community College. I teach critical thinking, and I teach students anywhere from 18 to 65 even. Most of my students, they were 
18 to 30. And I just began teaching a year and a half ago. I think what I love the most is getting to connect with my students on a real level. Critical thinking allows a unique conversation to happen in the classroom that wouldn't necessarily happen in a traditional setting of, you know, math or whatever. But I think that the, um, the unique situation for me specifically is being from this area and having gone to this particular community college when I was 19 years old and then being able to relate to my students in a way that maybe I wouldn't if I was from somewhere else or from a different culture. Um, but I'm from the same area, the same background as a lot of these students and it actually helps. And I've been given feedback that it helps to, have someone they can relate to to understand these really important topics. So I really just understand, I like, I like the connection that's built on asking lots of questions. That's great. Thank you all. So over the summer, we got to spend four weeks together in the teaching and solidarity with Black Lives. And I'm wondering if you all could share a little bit about what stuck out to you during this professional development and how do the big learnings apply to your teaching? One of the biggest things that popped out to me in terms of reflection was my own self-awareness and what that means in a classroom. Something I learned about myself over the last five, six weeks of that class, plus teaching now for the last two or three weeks, is my relationship with hegemony and how I learned that you cannot put everyone in a box. And that goes for race, it goes for gender, it goes for all of these qualifiers. But I learned how I tend to do that without even recognizing it. And now I'm way more aware of that. Also analyzing the, the text differently. So the text for the class that w I don't get to choose, but our department chooses. So now I've got this really amazing set of tools, especially from this professional development course about how to analyze it so that I'm teaching it through the lens of with a black lives at the fore for me. And while that might not be the curriculum that most people in North Carolina are using, I just feel like it's really important and asking big questions around every single turn where Instead of telling the students what I think, which I think is something that people tend to do sometimes without recognizing it, now what I feel like I'm intentionally doing, which was great with working with you, Becca, and Nina, and with Jonaki, is asking questions instead of telling answers. Very Socratic method sort of thing, and I really appreciate that perspective now. So nice to listen to your responses, Anita. I was reminded taking this course that we can't do this work alone, right? It's the, the nature of teaching in solidarity with Black lives, in my opinion, it's not like there's a step-by-step -step plan for that. It's not like they, there's just one right answer when someone says, how do you teach in solidarity with Black lives? It's bigger than that. It's messier than that. It's full of like really big questions that don't have one answer. And I was reminded in this course of the value of making space for that kind of work and that kind of conversation to really dig into something with other educators 
to be given texts um, and articles that you know are thought provoking and then to really just have space and time right it's not like 15 minutes at a staff meeting when you're thinking of a thousand other things um, you can just really go deeper so I appreciated that about this course um, just all the the big questions that we were kind of batting around and then similar to Anita I was prompted to think more about my own thinking than than I think I previously had so thinking about what what have I been taught about racism about privilege how have I been taught that has it been explicit has it been implicit and then like how does that show up in my teaching and how do I want to shift that so I I feel like I got kind of big picture takeaways from this course and then also more of the like nitty-gritty day-to-day um, I learned about this amazing thing in history that happened and I want to make sure that I work this into what I'm teaching um, so there's both both parts to that I'm wondering if you could share both of you a little bit more about like what was the conversation that was happening if you can recall that you were like aha oh that's that's something I hadn't thought of or like as a reminder of like that's like you said Molly that's something that I want to be teaching about mm -hmm. for me we we had a chance to explore kind of the creation of whiteness through several articles and kind of mark that on a historical timeline like how that kind of spiraled out of control and a big aha moment for me and and I I can't remember who brought it up first but was that kind of at every turn in history when we're talking about oppression there has also been resistance and people pushing back and so often more often than we are are taught and that is revealed to us those resistance movements are like cross-class cross-race cross-gender um so people kind of working in solidarity together against a common oppression or common challenges and I think that's really important, especially in Vermont, which is a pretty white state, um, when you have many white children in your in your class, or at least I do, um, to kind of give them a model, right? Like we want to teach them about, about racism and about white supremacy, and there's a lot of really hard things to face in that, but we also want them to feel hopeful and like they have agency and like they can still be change makers you know, with their, with their whiteness and with their white, white privilege. So giving them examples of white folks in history who have been part of resistance, I think can be really powerful. I love that. That was part of what I really felt was moving in that as well, was just thinking about how um, there's always been resistance. That was so important. There's a, there's a preacher, a reverend, Barber, Dr. Barber, who talks about how if we don't acknowledge that there have been movements to represent us in the past, then we are being ahistorical in our way of looking at the world. If you're not inspired by, you know, movements of the past, but how do we know about that stuff? Well, <laughs> let's teach about it, right? One of the things that stuck out to me was a reading that we did by Chrysanthius Lathan. It's called Dear White Teacher. Something that really stuck out to me about that reading was how teachers' relationships, regardless of our color or gender or whatever, are based on some fundamental principles of expecting the best out of your students, of 
not compromising one person to the next and being aware of what your biases are, being aware of how you were raised, being aware of where you were raised, and then also being aware of how people of color are treated in our current system. Young children, especially young black children, are sent to the police versus the mental health counselor. And if you didn't put into your own perspective that that is important, then you wouldn't really recognize your own behaviors, if that makes any sense. So that was something that stuck out to me was the the statistics about that and how important it is to recognize your own, well, I guess your own stuff, but then in the in the magic of a classroom, the moment where you re- realize like, oh, you know what, this person's probably gone through a whole lot more than is on the surface. And I think this Teaching for Black Lives class helped me to understand how to put that into perspective with what my expectations are of students and of myself. Thank you both so much. So if someone was to ask you, what does it mean for you to be teaching in solidarity with Black Lives, what might you say? I would probably tell them that I I want a better future where we're moving towards a just and equitable democracy. And if we continue with the status quo of teaching that Columbus found America, of teaching those stories that uplift and uphold the narrative, then we're just perpetuating oppression. And I do not want to be a part of that as a teacher. And I think that teaching for Black lives is fundamentally for me, the essence of that awareness. Yeah, for me, you know, first of all, there's so many ways to answer this question. And I think that my answer will change over time. I hope it does. I hope I keep, you know, learning and kind of playing with that idea. But a piece of it definitely is staying committed to flat work of my own self-reflection, of course, and my own self-learning and staying in conversation with colleagues about that as well. And then there's the piece that Anita mentioned of one of one of kind of the aha moments in one of our sessions was, you know, there's the world as we know it now, and then there's the world as we can imagine it. And I think there's a lot of precedent there in like Afrofuturism and, and black science fiction, but ourselves imagining that different world, helping our students to imagine that different world, and then actively working towards it and helping them feel their own power in that and and feel hope and feel that they are change makers. Those are all pieces for me in teaching in solidarity with Black Lives. What is a message that you have for teachers as we're all starting this new year of trying to teach within a pandemic? Oh my gosh, so many things. Well, I guess one of the silver linings for me of the pandemic and attempting to teach in a pandemic is that it kind of cuts away what feels now like less important things. It's a chance to like really look at our priorities and really look at taking care of each other this year and how that can happen in a school environment or in a remote learning environment. And so, yeah, in a way I appreciate the box kind of being taken away, the walls kind of being taken down a little bit and the freedom to really think about 
what's best for our students right now and what's best for ourselves. Because if we're not able to show up healthy and well, then, you know, we're not meeting our, our students' needs. So yeah, taking care of each other and really thinking about what are the priorities there and what, what else is, what, what can we? Those are great. Thanks, Molly. I think one of the things I want to tell teachers, it might sound cliche right now, but just being extremely flexible because every every single student is coming from a background that you may or may not be familiar with, whether they can afford the internet or not, whether they had breakfast this morning or not, and actually asking students if they're okay. A opening space for that is really important. Having that compassion to be like, hey, so I'm noticing that you're not doing too well. Can I talk to you about that? Do you want to talk about that? And I know that that's generally what teachers hopefully you're supposed to do. But I think with COVID and with all of the tension in our social fabric right now, that that's even more important. And in addition to that, something that I find is a priority with my students now is trying to find the humor in every situation or every lesson, trying to find something that I can give them to laugh at, whether it's me <laughs> or, you know, some video that I can play for them that takes them out of the moment for just a minute. Because I think laughter, if it's possible, is a healing mechanism. That along with compassion and flexibility is going to be really important to get us all through this. Having like joy and laughter is something that I actually have to work really hard at, especially because I bring such like heaviness with the topic of history and current events you know it's hard to remember that we're all like humans trying to get back so this is indigo radio thanks for listening today everyone we've been airing interviews from people who participated in the spark teacher education institute's professional development teaching in solidarity with black lives and we're going to be hosting another round of that this fall so please email us at sparkedvermont if you're interested in joining. That's at gmail.com. We're going to just end the show today with the words of one of our co-directors, Michaela Sims. Spark Teacher Education Program is really important because we're changing education. We're really centering students and our whole focus is teaching teachers how to engage students from where they are and really centering learning, not just grading and um, testing, but really teaching the whole person. And Spark is that. We're really about our own learning and connection to our students. We are not separate. We are also on the same path with them and we're growing together. And that's true for us faculty and the Spark students too, that we're together on this journey for social justice to make the world a better place. And we want more teachers of color in the classroom. We want to be together because every student needs to see themselves reflected. Uh, they need to see themselves in the student body. And they also need to see themselves in the administration and in their classroom teachers. So join us.